In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and old Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so. It is proper for us to do this, to to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Greetings, everybody. My name's Steve. Hi there. (laughs) That was nice. My name's Steve. Uh, I'm one of the staff here. Uh, It's my privilege to bring to you God's word tonight from Matthew 3. I heard someone say earlier in the week, uh, preaching uh, is more like being a waiter than it is the chef. Uh, You're bringing the meal that someone else has prepared. And so God has spoken to us through his word. uh, And I pray, and I'll pray now, that God will speak to us as he promises that he will uh, and that our hearts will be impacted by the truth of what he has spoken. So will you pray? Father, we're really thankful that you have decided to speak to us in your word. We're thankful that your word has been preserved all these years as you have spoken to us throughout history about your plans for the human race, about your plans to bring a saviour to your people. Father, I'm daunted about the responsibility of preaching and uh, we often find it hard to hear and so I ask that you would help me to preach and you would help us to listen that your word would change our lives tonight as we hear it. Amen. Uh, Those of us who were living in Sydney back in 2007 will remember what a big deal it is when a dignitary comes to town, in particular at that time, the US president. The preparations for a high-profile visit are huge. In the weeks beforehand, Secret Service agents come out. They spend weeks in Sydney 
uh, sussing out all of the locations. Months in advance, they examine the different routes that the motorcade will, will, will go through. They'll position where the snipers will be sitting. They'll look at all the possible changes of itinerary, mapping out everything in intricate detail so that when the president arrives, everything runs smoothly. Now, the coming of a dignitary has its own preparations in our day. In ancient times, the arrival of a dignitary had its own special protocol. Back in ancient times, before a king arrived in a city, a herald would come in advance to prepare for his safe and proper arrival. The herald would bring with him a handful of servants to make sure that the roadway was smooth, uh, would make sure that all the holes in the path and the roads would be filled up and all the rocks and the debris would be removed and any unsightly litter would be burnt or hidden away. The key difference, though, between ancient times and the Herald and modern-day times and the Secret Service is that the Herald had an extra special responsibility. Not only was he to prepare the way for the coming dignitary, it was his responsible to proclaim that king's coming to everyone that he met. And so in Isaiah 40, and if you've still got your Bibles there, I encourage you to open it up. It's on page 511. We read God's promise of a herald, someone who was going to come with a message for God's people. Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. And the rough ground shall become level, and the rugged plains, places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here in Isaiah 40 is a huge promise that one day in the future, the glory of God will be revealed to all of mankind. God himself will show up. Everyone will see it. The sins of God's people will be paid for. It's a really comforting promise. And what the people of God hung on to and looked out for was that there would be a herald, a voice in the desert calling, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And about 700 years, 700 years after this promise was made, in Matthew 3, we read these words. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John the Baptist is the promised, long-awaited herald 
who is proclaiming the promised and long-awaited king. Finally, the one who everyone was expecting to arrive, the revelation of God himself has come 700 years after the promise was made. And so as this king comes, we see that he is unlike Barack Obama or unlike any other ancient king. Three things that we discover about this king from Matthew 3. Firstly, John recognizes that the one he is ushering in is so different to him and he is so utterly unworthy in comparison of the one he is heralding in. You see there in verse, verse 11, John says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. This king that John is announcing is so glorious that John isn't even worthy enough to carry his stinking, dirty sandals. That is the king that John is heralding. Perhaps surprising for us, but not surprising for the people of this day, John also explains that the king who is coming will judge. He continues in verse 11, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This king is both glorious and incomparable, but he is also mighty and powerful, and he comes with authority to judge. And finally, at the end of the chapter, we see the amazing reality that just puts it beyond a shadow of a doubt who this king really is. Jesus is baptized by John and the heavens open up and God confirms who we already suspected this person to be. This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus is confirmed as the king long-awaited, the king who is God's son. Now, preparing for the arrival of the U.S. president is one thing. But how do you prepare for the arrival of God's son? I mean, it's just entirely different what preparations are involved when the king who is coming is God himself. How do you prepare for that? John's message, John's explanation of what preparation is required is strikingly simple. Take a look again at verse 1. John came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Don't you love it when instructions are simple? John doesn't muck around. He doesn't waffle. Unlike some recent speeches we've been exposed to, he doesn't take 17 minutes to get to the point. He says right away, this is what you need to do to prepare. Repent. God's rule is imminent. Get ready. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I want us to take a moment and just dwell on what this concept of repentance is all about. I think it's important that we get this, not only because this is the key message that John is preaching, but because it flows out from this what our response ought to be. 
Because repentance is the first response that is required from all people at all times, everywhere, to the arrival of Jesus. That is the response that is required to Jesus' coming. But also, repentance is the ongoing daily response to Christians, people who have submitted themselves to the Lordship of God. So repentance is an important word for us to understand. Now where this discussion gets tricky is the way that we use the word repentance and the way that the Bible uses repentance aren't always the same. So if you look at the dictionary as I did, you'll see how repentance is commonly understood. To feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. Is this your definition of what repentance is? And the problem with that is that it only tells half the story. Because the way that the Bible describes repentance is that it starts with feeling sorry. It starts with that sorrow. Charles Simeon, a Christian from long ago, said one of the most fundamental marks of true repentance is a disposition to see our sin the way that God sees it. So it becomes sorrow as we understand our sin from God's perspective. But at its heart, repentance leads to a changed mind, a changed understanding of ourselves and God and our sin, and this causes us to turn around, to change direction. Repentance, at its heart, involves us reorienting ourselves around God and returning to live under his rule. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we see this illustrated in God's people. They see their sin as God sees it. As God sees it, not as they see it. They confess their sin. God, I'm sorry for my sin. They ask for God's forgiveness. And they turn heart, soul, and mind back to their God. And it's this wholehearted Repentance that John is explaining is the required response to the coming of King Jesus. Now, it's a simple message, but the teachers among us here tonight will know that no matter how clear instructions are, people will inevitably respond in different ways. We read in verse 5 how some people responded. Take a look. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Some people came to John and they repented. They confessed their sins and John baptized them in the river, symbolizing God's forgiveness and his cleansing and of their commitment that day to turn back to their God. And these people are like so many that the Bible describes people who recognize that they are sinners and that they want to turn back to the God who is gracious and will forgive them their sin. But as we read from verse 7, this isn't the response of everyone who hears this simple message from John. And from verse 7, John slams the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
John throws all desire for any kind of political correctness out the window as he talks to the religious leaders of the day when they come out to see what he's been doing. Take a look with me from verse 7. John says to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's not a pretty message, is it? But once again, John is clear. Instead of responding to the coming of Jesus with repentance, the religious leaders of the day had decided that they would come up with their own criteria for what this response should look like. They wanted to rely on their DNA, their ancestry, their family ties to Abraham and didn't understand that the coming of Jesus actually requires a personal and individual genuine response yourself. You cannot rely on anything other than that individual response yourself to Jesus. And John says to them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Show that you have changed your mind. Show that you have turned back to God. Stop relying on your ancestry and instead change your heart and return to your God. John's straightforward message of repentance as he cries out in the desert 2,000 years ago continues to ring out just as loud and just as clear to us today. And this message of repentance continues to be proclaimed because God's rule has not yet come about in all of its entirety. Now, I don't want to spoil the story, but as we read on in Matthew, we discover, as we already have, that Jesus has lived. We discover later on that Jesus will die, that his death will be done to pay for the sins of the people and to offer forgiveness to all who will turn back to him. But Jesus' rule hasn't come about in all of its entirety, and so the Bible describes that what we are waiting for, in fact, what all of humanity is waiting for, what we've been waiting for for so long is the final return of Jesus to his planet Earth. That's all we're waiting for in the history of God's salvation. It's all coming to this, this one point as Jesus comes back to his people. He comes back to rule. He comes back to judge. He comes back to act as the king that he really is. And so with that in mind, I'd like to share a couple of application points for us. One, for those of us who don't yet follow Jesus as king, and also one for those of us who already have recognized that Jesus is king of this world. Firstly, if Jesus is not yet king, repent. And come back to him, because he is. 
And friends, don't be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have created their own criteria for what it means to prepare for the coming of King Jesus. For them, it was their family tree, their DNA, the fact that they were related to Abraham, a significant person in the Jewish faith. But they hadn't realized the right response that is required to Jesus' return. And so I ask you what criteria you may have created that makes you think that you are prepared for the coming of Jesus. There are a thousand things it could be. It might be regular attendance at church. It might be being able to show you've got a certificate of baptism from when you were a child. It might be having a rich Christian family heritage. Or something as simple and Australian as thinking that you're pretty good and there's plenty of other people who are much worse than you are. You know what that thing is for you that you are relying upon in preparation for Jesus' return. But the response that is required now is the response that was required then, and that is to turn back to God. The wonderful news and the news of grace that rings out from this passage, and as we continue to read Matthew, is that God is gracious and he desires that all people will come back to him. That is God's desire, that you return to your God and your creator. And the wonderful news is that as each day goes on, that is another day for people to come back to their God, to repent. And so if we get tomorrow, if Jesus doesn't come back tomorrow, that's another day where we could repent. We get to Monday, that's another day where people got to repent. And we don't know when Jesus will return, but as each day passes, that's another chance for people to come back and repent. And just think if Jesus had come back 10 years ago, or five years ago, or two years ago, how many of us would not have had that chance to repent and turn back to him? And friends, as we read on, the rock-solid assurance we have from the death and resurrection of Jesus is that if we confess our sins, if we return back to God, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the promise that Jesus gives if we return back to him. It's good news. So repent. Jesus is coming back. Now for those of us who are Christians, I think our temptation, when I say our, I mean mine, and I hope that applies to you too, is that we get tempted to think that repentance is something that we did on a particular date, however many years ago, but instead we need to remember that repentance is something that we do, that it is a regular discipline of the Christian life. All those years ago when the reformer Martin Luther nailed his uh, 95 theses to the door, the first one that he nailed up there was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Our entire Christian life is one of returning to God. And it's true that we need to do that, isn't it? Because we drift. We wander away. We get distracted by the things of this world. We get discouraged and 
we decide that we'll walk off on our own path. Our lives frequently drift from living under the rule of God. Some days we don't even consider how God might have us live on that particular day. And yet, as we read throughout the New Testament, the life of the Christian is, des- is described as one where we constantly return to God, confess our sins and trust in him and the death of Jesus to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I want to give us three suggestions for how we might pursue repentance on a daily basis. Firstly, we need to weaken ungodly desires with the gospel. I think one of the first barriers to repentance is not really wanting to repent because we actually like the sin that we're doing. And so we know we need to repent and we know we need to turn back to God and I've seen that in my life. And you look at something and you go, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but it just feels too good. It's too enjoyable. And you've got this, this conflict in your heart as you know that you're doing what is contrary to God's will. And so we need to weaken these ungodly desires by reminding ourselves regularly of the gospel. Tim Chester writes these words. He says, One of our problems is that, as Christians is that we think of holiness as giving up things we enjoy out of a vague sense of obligation. But I'm convinced that holiness is always, always good news. God calls us to the good life. He is always bigger and better than anything sin offers. The key is to realize why change is good news in your struggle with sin. Tim Keller adds, In the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. Repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. So friends, let's continue to remind ourselves of the goodness of God expressed to us in the gospel and his desire to bring about good and not harm in our lives that we might truly repent from our sin. Secondly, if we are to pursue repentance as a regular activity until the return of Jesus, we need to make it a regular discipline of examining our lives and of asking God to reveal to us how we might be living outside of his rule. Taking that time to ask God to convict us You are the king. How am I not living under your lordship? God, how do I need to repent? God, as I open up your word to read on the bus this morning, would you show me ways in my life where I need to turn back to you, where I have wandered far from your desires and your plans for my life? God, is there anything about my life, my thoughts, my attitudes, my desires, my goals, my aspirations, my motivations that are unpleasing to you, that are contrary to your heart and your desires for my life. How about 
the way that I treat people, God? Is there anything there that I need to change? The way I, I think about others? The way I use my time? Asking God to convict us. One of my problems is that I can very easily spot what's wrong in other people's lives. Perhaps you're the same. <laughs> and I need to continue to ask God to convict me of what's wrong in my heart so that I might turn back to him. Get my own house in order first. But finally, we need to invite correction from others. And it doesn't get much more countercultural than this. But the reason for that is that the heart, the Bible describes the heart as deceitful above all things. And our ability to uh, perceive sin in our lives is still harmed by the very sin that lies within us. And we need the help of others to help us know when we need to turn back to God. So I want to ask you this question. Do you have good friends? I'm not talking about friends who you like to spend time with, although they are good friends. I mean friends who desire your spiritual good. Friends who desire even more than staying friends, your continued growth in your relationship with God. Do you have those kind of friends? Those friends who will tell you when you are wandering from God and who will say the hard things and urge you to come back. As you read the Bible, as you read Proverbs, you realize they're the friends that you actually want to have. And they're the friends that we need to continue to urge us to keep coming back to God. Here's something that you could say in order to encourage friends to encourage you in your Christian life. I know this sounds crazy, but I really trust you and I value your perspective. So I want to invite you to share things with me that will be difficult for me to hear. When, not if, you see sin in my life that you don't think I'm aware of, please point it out to me. When, not if, you see me making mistakes with my kids or my spouse or my boss or whoever, Please tell me. Everything is fair game. Nothing is off limits. You might want to add this afterwards. I wish that I could promise that I would immediately respond with humility and repentance, but that might not always be true. But I will promise that I won't hold your comments against you and let it ruin our friendship. I want you to know that I will see your willingness to say hard things to me as a sign that you are a real friend who wants to help me live a life of repentance under the rule of King Jesus. Very countercultural, isn't it? Asking someone to say anything bad about us. But something that would be so valuable in our pursuit of repentance, in recognizing sin, and in regularly turning back to God. And God has provided us with a family. That's what we are. We're a family the church, that we might together live out our relationship with him under his good and his perfect rule until he returns.
We're going to close tonight by saying a confession together. Christians have said it throughout the ages. We haven't said it at Saturday night for a little while. The challenge in saying a confession is that you can say it very easily without meaning it, but let's pray that God's grace would convict us and enable us to not only say the words of the confession, but together to mean these words. For you, this might be the first time you have confessed to God that you are a sinner and that you would like to repent and return to his rule. If that is the case, praise God. That is great news. For some of us, we will have repented and confessed our sins many times before. And let's ask God that this would be a genuine confession and a turning back to him that we might live under his rule. Let's take a look at the words on the screen and we'll say them together. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all people, we acknowledge and confess the grievous sin and wickedness which we have so often committed by thought, word and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your anger and indignation against us. We earnestly repent and are deeply sorry for these our wrongdoings. The memory of them weighs us down. The burden of them is too great for us to bear. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past, and grant that from this time onwards, we may always serve and please you in newness of life. To the honour and glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.